This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by Physicians for Social Responsibility, the Sam L. Cohen Foundation, and listeners like you. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today is part of our ongoing series on white privilege and white racism in Maine and how we can talk about it. My guest is Shelley Touchluck, a professor of education at Mount St. Mary's College in Los Angeles, and the author of the book Witnessing Whiteness, The Need to Talk About Race and How to Do It. She specializes in white racial identity and how it affects our interactions within and across race. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Shelley. Thank you. I'd like to start by asking you, what is it about race and racism that makes it so hard for white people to talk about it? Well, from my experience and all of the variety of people that I've spoken to who are you know, self-identified as white, a lot has to do with just how we're trained to think about race at all and how we're trained to think about ourselves in relationship to race. I think one of the foundational elements is that our country is sort of defined by this idea that we all get where we go based on our own merit and everything is based on you know, our personal responsibility. And so we tend, and I'm speaking specifically of white people, to think of ourselves not as part of a racial group, but as strictly individuals. And that's a very different experience than most people of color who, by virtue of continuing ongoing subtle or overt racism, end up receiving a message very clearly that they are part of a group, representing a group in some way, and that um, they are marked um, by their by their race. And so I think that difference means that for white people growing up, we tend not to be... Um, Thinking of race is a very salient thing. We tend not to talk about it too much in reference to ourselves. And therefore, I think we don't get good at it. We don't get good at understanding the nuances of race and how um, it plays a role in our lives. So I, I appreciate that. So that's a really benign reason in some ways. You're saying we're socialized to not think of ourselves as belonging to a racial group. We don't, we don't get many chances to practice. I'm guessing I there's other reasons, too. Yes, I think there another big key component is that we are taught that the correct way to approach issues of race in our society is to be colorblind. And um, this idea of being colorblind has problems that a lot of us don't recognize. By saying that I'm colorblind, I'm essentially giving people a message that I don't see myself in terms of race, and therefore I'm unlikely to see how racism might actually have been in sort of ingested in me unconsciously. And so if I'm not thinking about it or paying attention to it, I'm actually more likely to have those unconscious elements stay unconscious, which leads to the problem that I'm actually maybe more likely to step on toes without realizing it and the consequence is be defensive if I'm called on it because, hey, after all, I'm colorblind. And if I'm approaching the world in a colorblind way, I'm also unlikely to be paying attention to how our systems still continue to perpetuate racism, in which case if someone comes to me 
expressing that they believe that a system or some policy or an institution has racism within it, I'm unlikely to also be paying attention to that, possibly unlikely to hear it. Right, and therefore maybe oblivious to how that's impacting a person of color's everyday life. Right, and um, my first thought was, is that really true? I, I didn't know if I believed it or not. And so I went and asked a few of my friends um, who are people of color from various backgrounds, and each of them said, oh, yeah, that's exactly what's going on. That's exactly how it comes off, and that's exactly the message that we receive when I'm colorblind ends <laughs> up being mentioned. And so what I started doing was incorporating that understanding into some of the, the conversations I was having with other people. And after the book got published, I, I started getting asked to do some presentations on occasion. And I was telling this story once um, at a presentation, and I saw in the first row there was a maybe a middle-aged woman um, sitting with her friend, um, a white woman and a black woman. And both of them appeared to be, oh, I don't know, maybe in their mid-50s. And as I continued to speak and tell about my revelation, the white woman began to cry intensely. And the black woman put her arm around her and just held her for you know minutes and minutes. And it wasn't until the end of the presentation that the, the two of them came up to me and the white woman said, I never knew what I was doing to my friend, who I love. And the black woman, still holding her, said, I love her so much, I didn't have the heart to not be friends, but this has been painful for years. Mm. And it wasn't but... Ten minutes after that, that a different woman came up to me and said, you know, I want to tell you a little something about this colorblindness thing. And what she let me know was that it was really important that um, the elders that trained me into how to see the world had actually been following directions from a lot of people of color who were telling them during the civil rights era that being colorblind was the right way to go. What she then alerted me to is that I was being very self-critical about how I had been trained um, and by extension criticizing others for something that they had actually been taught to do as part of an effort toward getting over racism and that as I moved forward it would be good to acknowledge that. Right, so I hear you kind of already naming in a way this central tension in doing this work as a white person, which is how to how to look at what is destructive and name it without having to hate yourself, essentially, or hate your elders. I think that's true, and I think that she was perceptive enough to realize that I was going to lose people, that if I wasn't really able to tell the story in a way that didn't hold myself as bad, that it was going to be hard to get other people to um, to go along with the the conversation, especially because the effort wasn't bad. The effort around colorblindness has been of positive intention. Now, positive intentions can lead us, you know, toward a whole bunch of a mess. So it's not to say that everything is love and butterflies just, be, just because we have a good intention, but to at least acknowledge that we are largely, and I mean you know, 99% of the people I come in contact with, are really invested in doing their best in terms of race. 
and really want to understand better and really believe that this idea of colorblindness is the right way to go. And so it's a, it, it can be a real challenging conversation to tease apart where the positive intention, um, you know, doesn't actually stop us from enacting hurtful behaviors. That's really hard to hear. It is. <laughs> that, I think, is part of what, why white people avoid talking about race, is it feels like such a potential minefield. And we're all, we're all afraid of, I think, looking stupid or bad. Yeah, and I think it's, I think it's, it's that and it's another step deeper, too. We don't want to be stupid and, and bad or be perceived as such. And I would suggest one of the worst things you can say to somebody in our society, especially to a white person, is you're racist. I think it conjures immediately the image of KKK and skinheads and brutal, brutal history that we don't want to associate with. And I think that's completely understandable. And yet, when that mental image goes there and our internal sense of self gets tied up in it, we're really no longer available to a real conversation because the emotional reactivity, the, the shame reaction, can be triggered so intently. Right. So how do you explain to someone whose image of racism, you know, is the KKK and the skinheads, how do you explain to someone what kind of modern day, everyday racism is? You know, what, when you said Overt racism and less overt racism. What are we talking about by kind of less overt racism? What do you mean? I think specifically the less overt stuff has a lot to do with um, very subtle, um, to me and to other white people, subtle. By the way, I think to people of color, it's completely obvious. Um, But messages that um, my way is the better way and your way is not. Right, so we become the reference point, the standard against which everything else is either less than or, or assumed to be. Right, and you know, I my my own conversations with friends um, would bear that out. I, you know, I've got friends say, well, you know, I'm just normal. You know, I don't have a culture. I'm just I'm just a normal person. There's nothing that marks me. I don't I don't have anything that is you know there there is no ethnicity to my background. Right. I mean, I read, I went to your blog, Witnessing Whiteness, and I read the essay that you wrote about vanilla, the flavor vanilla, and how you had always grown up thinking vanilla was like, not a flavor. It was the base, it was ice cream. (laughs) And then all the other things were flavors. And it feels so the same around whiteness and white norms. I think I grew up very much thinking that um, yeah, my way was it was the the way, <laughs> and everything else was something. And it's a profound shift to realize that there's it's just as much an ethnicity as anything else. Are, are there reasons why people resist knowing that? Do you think is there is there a hidden cost to realizing that whiteness is just as much a flavor as it were as anything else? I think it's really complicated. I think that it is. I think it is one of a really really huge psychological challenge that requires a deal of, of, of healing from the way that race has um, affected all groups. And I think for white people, we have very specific issues surrounding race. Um, I think the the idea of race being sort of a vanilla or plain or not visible, not acknowledged the norm 
part of the trouble with that is that if we do start paying attention to race as culture, paying attention to, or at least white culture and what that might involve, it it requires us to go into the history of white supremacy. It just does. And the idea of in any way um, associating ourselves with that history is just extremely painful if there isn't some other side of the balance that's helping prop us up as viable, positive, worthwhile human beings that are also considered white. And that's where the racial identity piece comes in. I, I've thankfully run across um, groups of people um, that I've been associated with for a really long time that get together and we talk about who we're trying to be as anti-racist individuals, realizing that we've had to, for our own sake, create something of an identity process around becoming anti-racist white people. And as much as we do that, we still have some very unfortunate ties to the history that we continue to benefit from. That's the trouble. Once we go into the race conversation, if we go deep enough, we will run into where our lives continue to be shaped in some way by the history of white people being seen as good, safe, smart, trustworthy, et cetera, et cetera. So I can imagine someone saying, you know, all right, so if I go back and I look at history, you know, that was so long ago. I don't feel guilty about that. That had nothing to do with me. I can't take that on. What do you mean when you say I continue to benefit from that? Um, things like the GI Bill, um, redlining, historical aspects of how white individuals, and I'm just going back a couple of generations. I'm going back to my parents and their parents who ended up receiving governmental funds to help them access home ownership when a teeny tiny, virtually insignificant minority of people of color were allowed to access those resources. So and let's just take it. Yeah. So let me just take it. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but let's go into the detail about it. So the GI Bill, tell me more what you mean by that. The GI Bill was made available to veterans um, to purchase, to help purchase homes. At least that's one element of it. And I think it's about 98% of the recipients of those funds were white. My grandparents were able to purchase a home based on governmental allocations. Then my parents were able to access funds to go to college. And yes, they did wonderful things. They did a good job. They made great choices. But there are other people who also did wonderful jobs and made great choices too that didn't necessarily have those benefits. And so a lot of the baby boomer generation leaving inheritance to people of, of my you know, next generation um, have links to the decisions that were made that were not equitably distributed in terms of resources. I see. So there was a benefit that was given to your grandparents that has made a huge difference two generations later in terms of financial stability, opportunities that can be directly attributed to racial allocation of funds effectively. Yes. Yeah. So that's really powerful. It's such, and I'm struck at how unknown that example is. At least I, I didn't grow up in this country, so maybe it is. Do you think it's publicly known among American students? Do they get taught that? No. 
I don't think this is part of our general curriculum. Um, and I am not a historian, and I sometimes know, you know, a good number of the facts, but not every piece of it. But, you know, it goes right along with redlining and, um, and, and the fact that for many years, and this is in the early 1900s, there were whole sections of neighborhoods where pretty much they would not give mortgage loans to people of color. Would not. And, and that's what redlining means, right? Those neighborhoods were outlined in a red pen on the, in the banker's map. Is that, is that the reference? Yes. Yes. So when you add, so when we talk about why our cities continue to be segregated, this, it's not accidental, and it's not the fact that people just like living with one another, which tends to be the more individualized, focused um, explanation. And that's another really big part of how we tend to grow up in the United States. We grow up with a lens of individuals make their choices based only on their own view of the world, and you know everybody gets to where they're going to get to based on just their own interests and personality and work and whatnot. But the systemic lens that says actually a lot of people end up where they do in large part, not exclusively, but in large part because we've had systems over time like GI Bill being differentially, you know, offered, like freeway systems, that at least in L.A., there are certain freeway systems that really are helping to connect middle-class neighborhoods. Well, the middle-class neighborhoods have been largely white. So it's a lot of public resource dollars going to help support middle-class families during the 50s, et cetera, that really end up supporting white families more than they do families of color. But because it's not identified as race-based, it doesn't get criticized as such. So these are all these levels of advantages that for a white person, they, they're, they're invisible, that they just, you know, they get the GI benefit, they get the loan, and they're not aware necessarily that other people aren't getting it. So they're not even aware of, of the inequality that's there. I think that's true. And, I th- and you know, I'm a teacher educator. And so when I look back at my own education, I wasn't taught any of these less savory aspects of, of our system or our history. So I want to come back to white racial identity, because what we're saying is that as we begin to look at this, as we begin to, to consider ourselves as white people and learn what that means, it, it f- invites and almost forces a confrontation with history. And I hear you saying that that can be so painful that it's important to have some kind of balance to that, some kind of antidote where you can also be forming a positive sense of white racial identity in order to bear kind of the awfulness of the history. And I'm curious how you do that. How, what, what do you mean when you say that? How, how do you help people do that? Well, number one, it's a controversial thing in and of itself, <laughs> just to, to, to note. Um, so many people who are doing anti-racism work um, really are sick and tired of privileging white people's psychology. And that just has to be acknowledged. That that's a completely understandable approach. I mean, there are some people who are just, you know what? White people just need to get over themselves, to stop being self-indulgent and stop worrying about their own emotional health because this system is, and, and all of us operating unconsciously within it, is really damaging to other people. So let's just go into it. Um, I spent several years mostly around people of color trying to be useful and supportive and, and change things. You know, that, that became a real inspiration for me. But I'll never forget the day when a woman in Watts (laughs) looked at me and said, you know, Shelly, we got this. We know how to help our kids. 
you know what we need to do? What we need is for you to go and help the white people understand so that when our kids grow up and they come knocking on a door looking for opportunity, that there are doors that will open. That was very likely not the first time that I had heard that message before. Go work with the white people. White people need to work with white people. But it's the first time that I was able to hear that message. And I think the reason is because the idea of me going and talking to other white people about this issue was so frightening, so incredibly frightening, because when I look back at it now, what I realize is I didn't know how to have that conversation. I was too fresh from being blind to all of this myself. And so my reactions were either to feel just totally silenced and not have any useful language to offer or to be really self-righteous and angry because I was angry at that point. I was angry at my teachers. I was angry at my parents. I was angry at society for not having taught me this stuff earlier. I felt really duped because I felt at, I felt at a personal disadvantage of being able to appropriately navigate a diverse environment. And that made me less of a good friend. It made me less of a good colleague to my people of color colleagues. And I, I hated it. I absolutely hated it. And so it was at that point when I started, you know, looking into this as a serious subject for study. And thankfully, thankfully through that, I ended up getting a call one day that said, you know, there's going to be this group forming and there are a bunch of white people getting together to talk about privilege and talk about how they can be better anti-racist. Like, oh, well, guess where I'm going? <laughs> so I showed up to the meeting and mm -hmm. I've been going as much as I can monthly for the last 12 years because that's the space where I found out that I wasn't crazy. That's where I learned that other people were going through the same thing I was in terms of being nervous being scared, feeling shameful, um, feeling like there was something I didn't understand that I was feeling resistant to, but I didn't really know what to do about that. And then if I was trying to do something about that, sometimes I got really challenging feedback, and sometimes it was from white people, and sometimes it was people of color. I didn't know how to do this well with anybody. And in sitting in those meetings, you know, slowly but surely, the voice understanding nuanced perspectives started to emerge that has helped me become the kind of person who can walk into any space with anyone and say, you want to talk about race? We can talk about it. Doesn't mean it's going to be smooth. Doesn't mean it's going to be pleasant. Doesn't mean it's going to be comfortable. And it doesn't mean it's going to feel safe if safe means being comfortable. But it does mean that I'm willing to show up stay in the space, even if it gets difficult, recognize that the reactions that are coming from people are coming out of trauma that I think everybody, every group in the United States has suffered in some way, in different ways. But when people are still in reactivity, that's based in injury. And thankfully, over these 12 years, trying to learn a skill set to help me stay non-reactive in the moment, to stay present and stay able to respond to what's going on in that environment, to, to become curious instead of defensive, has just made all the difference in the world.
Do you feel like um, being in a in a kind of all white support discussion group? Do you feel like that it has enabled you and probably other people in the group to be honest and to kind of take certain risks about acknowledging some of the unconscious racism that we've learned just growing up in this culture? That do you feel like you've been able to kind of be more more honest without fear of judgment in the same way? I think that's probably true. I think that it does serve that. I think that the benefit to it uh, that also goes along with it is that we can say these things without injuring the people of color next to us. And that's, I think, the challenge that often comes with multiracial dialogues. And by the way, just because I'm used to this, you know, white space as a value doesn't mean that it's in... Um, in, as a replacement for meeting in multiracial groups. I think both are really important. The idea of a, a white affinity space is to say, hey, we need to do this work for ourselves so that we are better able to meet together as, uh, as, as diverse multiracial groups. That makes sense. I mean, it seems to me that you're really respecting the, the request that was made of you, which is to go do this work among white people. So I don't hear it as an exclusive thing. In some ways, I hear it as a kind of taking responsibility. That's the effort. The effort is to be responsible. Um, I, I did have the benefit of having a couple people of color in my life who were uh, amazing teachers, and I wouldn't be where I am today without them. And I also recognize that you know there's a mature, there's there's a lot of white people, and if white people continue to only learn from people of color and make that well, gee, there's no people of color around, so I can't learn about racism. Then we really, as a as a larger group, aren't going to get very far very fast. And it really puts pressure and a burden on people who really shouldn't be their job. But yes, um, to have white people gather and say, you know, we can at least get farther with each other than we would on our own. We might be two steps forward and one step back. <laughs> I think that's often the case. Um, but at least we get farther ahead over time. I want to end with one last question um, about being a bystander. I know that you're um, writing another book, and I, I, I read a chapter from it about being a bystander to kind of race, racial interactions happening or kind of racism in our society as a whole. And I, I want to close by, by asking you to tell me um, why is it important for white people, I, I know this may seem so obvious, but I really want to give you a chance to articulate it. Why is it important for white people to kind of become involved and care about this issue? When it is, it is uncomfortable, when painful feelings come up, what makes it, uh, what it, why is it incumbent upon us to do this? Beyond the fact that it's the right thing to do, I think it's liberating. I believe that taking up our racial identity in a serious way and digging in and finding out how powerful the social messages have been that have just become infused within us, I believe that it allows us to maneuver, to walk, to engage in our diverse environment in such better ways to help us avoid doing what none of us want to do, which is to keep injuring people unconsciously. I don't think we want to hurt each other unconsciously. And I think this is such a powerful possibility for being our true best selves in a more conscious way. 
Shelly Touchluck, thank you so much for your courage, being willing to be really uncomfortable and, and talk about it. And I think that kind of greases the skids for all of us to fall in your footsteps. I so appreciate you doing this work. Could you give us your website address? Because I know there's some wonderful discussion guides there that people can use if they want to have their own discussion group. Sure. Um, the website address is witnessingwhiteness.com, and there there's a tab called uh, Workshop Series, and that entire series was built based on requests from others who decided that just, just sitting alone reading a book wasn't going deep enough, and that series is designed to be useful to either just exclusively white groups of people or multiracial groups. The questions have been thoroughly vetted um, to really try and dig into what's your personal experience of these issues that the book talks about. And so they're dialogue prompts, and it, it offers facilitation guides. So you know, even if you're not a, normally a diversity facilitator, you can, you can do that for each other and, and help grow each other um, as a shared leadership development process. Shelley Touchlock, thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space Radio. If you did not get a chance to listen to this whole interview, or you would like to, or you'd like to email a link to your friend, please go to our website, which is safespaceradio.com. There you can subscribe to get a weekly link to that week's show. You can also listen to all our prior podcasts. You can download the show to your smartphone for your morning commute, and you can also write us a comment. We would really love to hear from you. You can also like us on Facebook. You can uh, listen to us through iTunes. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our consultant. Coming up next is Speak Freely. <laughs>